Welcome to Africa Insights, a podcast from New Lines magazine. I'm Kwanguliwewe. In today's episode, we delve into South Sudan's deadly civil strife, 12 years after gaining independence from Sudan. In 2011, South Sudan was born amid great hope and became the world's youngest nation following a referendum in which its people voted overwhelmingly to secede from Sudan. This followed decades of fighting between government and opposition forces in South Sudan that killed hundreds of thousands and displaced millions. Barely two years later, the country plunged into a civil war following a political struggle between President Salva Kiir and his deputy Rick Machar. Violence broke out between the country's two largest ethnic groups, the Dinka and the Nurs. In 2018, a peace agreement was signed that led to the formation of a unity government in 2020. Despite the peace agreement, Sudan has struggled to form a viable governing system and has been plagued by widespread corruption, communal violence and political conflict. Intercommunal and intersectional violence rages on in most parts of the country, with killings, displacement, looting and destruction of properties becoming the norm. A later cycle of violence erupted in February in the disputed oil-rich Abyei region, which is claimed by both Sudan and South Sudan. More than 50 people have been killed, among them families as well as UN peacekeepers. To discuss what the major driver of the recent conflict is and where it is leading to, I'm joined by Joshua Craze, who is based in New York and focuses his research on Sudan and South Sudan. Over the last decade, he has done field work in South Sudan for Human Rights Watch and the Norwegian Refugee Council. Later in the podcast, I'll be speaking to James Barnett, who is a New Lines contributor. He's also a researcher with extensive field work in Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan and Ukraine. Joshua, welcome to the podcast. Total pleasure. Great to be here. Joshua, let's start with a broad view of what the political, economic and social landscape currently looks like in South Sudan. What's the state of the nation? Um, I mean, pretty catastrophic right now. There's been, since South Sudan became independent from Sudan in 2011, there's been sort of actually the withdrawal of the government from even the meager amount of services that were provided under the Sudanese regime. You have a country almost entirely reliant on humanitarian agencies for the supply of medicine and education. You have the withdrawal of the government from the payment of wages. And even when wages are paid, which is intermittently, they haven't kept pace with inflation, which is chronic and very destructive. So when I'm going around the country, you'll often find policemen and school teachers, university teachers will actually survive from subsistence farming outside of town and their their jobs are effectively emptied out of any sort of commercial value. On top of that, the coalition of political elites that came to power in 2011 or consecrated their power in the new state subsequently divided amongst themselves in 2013. And that led to a devastating civil war from 2013 to 2018. And that war ended with a peace agreement that saw the rebels rejoin the government, but that actually hasn't stopped the conflict. In many areas of the country, conflict has got worse since the signing of the peace agreement. And part of the reason for that fundamentally is that the government in Juba has been using violence in the peripheries of the country 
to jockey for the position and can meet, compete amongst themselves. So though the war formally is over, actually violence is continuing. In terms of the international peace effort, where does Sudan stand with these? Because have the efforts from the African Union and the international community proved to be ineffective because clearly South Sudan has struggled to achieve lasting peace? So the first peace agreement that was tried was in 2016. That was called ARCSIS. Um, And that broke down very quickly. That was a peace agreement that was largely done under the watch of the Troika, so Norway, England and the EU and America. And it was a bad peace agreement. Um, and there wasn't a serious amount of knowledge of the dynamics either in South Sudan or regionally. And this the, the, would enable a peace agreement to work. It was very sort of formal, boilerplate, peacekeeping language that really could have been taken from any country around the world that was in civil war. The second agreement, the one that has held, was done because there's been a regional realignment in politics, to say South, the Southern Sudanese, the SPLM, the ruling party, spent 22 years fighting against Khartoum, fighting for, if not independence, to change the government in Khartoum. But since South Sudanese independence, really there's been this realignment that has seen the South Sudanese president, Salva Kiir, and many of his advisors become much closer, first to Bashir and then to Burhan. And what that has meant was that there's been very little space for the sponsorship of rebel groups. Because traditionally in South Sudan, rebel groups are sponsored by external actors who have an interest in the country. And what that meant was that Sudan looked after this peace agreement. It was was really forced through by Khartoum because Khartoum has at the same time a close relationship with Salva, but also historically a very close relationship with many of these rebel groups. And so what that did was that the region via the figure of Sudan, came together really to force this government to sit down and become a transitional government. But that is really a regional question about maintaining the interests of Sudan in South Sudan. It hasn't fundamentally come to grips with the political economy of the country. And that's a political economy based on predating and looting resources by the elite and the elite sharing up those resources by themselves as the country is immiserated. And for, to be honest, for the rest of the diplomatic community, I just don't think they know what to do. One, they have no real interest in South Sudan. All of their attention is being taken by the situation in Ethiopia and in uh, Sudan. Two, the problem really isn't one that can be got at by a lot of the frameworks of liberal peace building. Because what liberal peace building says is we need to build a developmental state. We need the state to have a functional democracy. It doesn't address questions of what does an economic model look like in a place like South Sudan? How can we have a flourishing economy here? And what we've seen is you have a number of real crises that provide the ground for the current conflict. One is year-on-year historic flooding for several years really created massive displacement in the country. Two is a crisis of pastoralism. Many of South South Sudan's people are pastoralists, and it's not clear, given the effect of climate, given the effect of conflict, that the pastoralist economy can survive intact in the same way. It has to reinvent itself. And in terms of these questions, the sort of panoply of international diplomats and the World Bank and the IMF, really their only answer is, let's build a developmental state. But we've seen the reality of what's happened there is that the IMF has given a whole series of loans over the last two years 
to South Sudan, I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars, 30% more or less of every single loan immediately disappears into the pockets of the politicians. The rest of it has been used to do things like, for instance, pay off national security, so that's the um, secret intelligence force of, of South Sudan, at the time when they are killing um, opposition politicians in neighboring countries. And those salaries are being paid by World Bank loans. Let me pick up on that. So Transparency International has ranked Somalia, Equatorial Guinea, and South Sudan as Africa's most corrupt states in the world. This was in 2023. Now, South Sudan is scheduled to hold elections this year in December, and it's the first general election since independence. You have painted a very grim picture of the state of the nation. So is the country actually ready to hold free and fair elections? And is the environment conducive, in your opinion? I mean, I think every, you know, to be truly a Machiavellian about it, every step towards free and fair elections is a step towards more conflict. For instance, for these elections, there has been no demarcation of constituency boundaries. If one were to try to demarcate constituency boundaries, it would cause conflict throughout the country. There are, like, just this week, there are conflicts over land in Warak, Abye, Western Barakazal, Jongle. We're talking already, 30% of the country is already at war over largely conflicts which at least are about seemingly territory. They're political conflicts about control and economics expressed territorially. So to demarcate constituency boundaries here would be to ignite an absolute fire over the entire country. But then to say that you're going to hold an election without constituency boundaries. So they're going to be blurry. They're not going to be in any way sort of technocratically free and fair elections. I think that's the the difficulty is that Salva here, the president, deeply wants elections for his own legitimacy and to remove the arms embargo. But also the people of South Sudan, when I travel around the country, really want demo- the chance to express their democratic voice. We've had, under the terms of this peace agreement, set in 2018, six years ago, all the positions in the country, from county commissions to state governors, are determined from Juba. It is a technocratic form of dictatorship created by the very form of the peace agreement. And that's the context in which people are yearning to actually have a say in who controls their lives and how they can control their own lives. So I think these elections will go ahead. I think Salvo, they won't be free or fair, but they will be a genuine expression in some ways of a democratic aspiration from the South Sudanese people. And Salva Kiya has a very difficult, delicate line to walk in trying to keep together his coalition sufficiently that it doesn't break down into open civil war before the elections happen. Now, you've just mentioned about the fighting resuming in the disputed areas of Abia and Jongle. What reignited this violence? Yes, so Abia is the region between Sudan and South Sudan. And its real residents are are the Ngok Dinka, and they're part of South Sudan's largest ethnic minority, the Dinka. When Sudan's civil war comes to an end in 2005, South Sudan is promised a referendum on independence. And Abye is also promised a referendum on whether it would like to join an independent South Sudan or stay in Sudan. And everyone expects them to vote, if they've got a vote, to join South Sudan. But they don't. I was living in Abye at the time. Instead, the Sudanese army invade the territory, preventing a vote taking place, displacing the population of Abye Dengok into the south to a town called Agok. And in Agok, they build up a big market and it becomes a humanitarian hub for a lot of the agencies. 
And finally, the Northern Army withdraws, and instead, a peacekeeping force called UNISFA, a UN, at that time a monoethnic Ethiopian peacekeeping force, comes in to keep the peace in what should be a demilitarized area. But it's not so. Because though the north can go back to the center of Abyei, the north of Abyei, which has a small, pretty minor oil field, remains under the control of the Sudanese army. And they never leave the north of Abyei. So Abyei already then becomes divided up, where the north is taken by the Sudanese government and by their allies in the Messeria, a nomadic population that annually migrate into Sudan, uh, into, into Abyei. And the center and the south belong to the Ngoc. They have their own referendum on independence. It isn't recognized for the Sudanese government. They won't give away Abyei because they rely on, on the support of the Messeria. And that's especially the case during the current conflict where both Hemeti and Bahan, the two men you know, destroying Sudan in their war, are both competing for the favors of the Messeria. But it also serves Salva Kiir, the South Sudanese president, to not really resolve the Abyei file, because that allows him to keep his relationship with Sudan, and also means that a number of Nokdinka politicians who are very powerful don't take up a centralist space in the politics of South Sudan. So Salva is playing a very smart game. Formally, he recognizes Burhan as the leader, so he's on the side of South. And the oil transit fees, which are the fees that Sudan should receive, for the South Sudanese oil that goes through its territory, go to Burhan. So he funds the army that way. But he's also has ministers involved with business deals with Hemeti, who is the head of the Rapid Support Forces. Indeed, Tukyugat Lua, who is the security advisor of Salva Kiir, who is the adopted son of Bashir, the old Sudanese dictator, has very close business relationships with Hemeti. And at the same time, let's not forget that there are a number of relatively independent Sudanese rebel groups under Al-Hinnu, which are also based inside South Sudan. So he's playing all the sides at the moment, and he's trying to maintain that position of relative neutrality. And I think that for the moment is holding and will hold until there is a real sense that one side is emerging as a victor. So if we look at the fighting that's happening in Abyei, has there been any intervention from Juba? Well, that's partly the problem with the fighting in Abyei. So the fight, this fighting in Abyei really comes back to 2020, when in the south, so just to the south of Abyei is a state called Wala, and it's the state that Salva Kiir comes from. It's really like the wellspring of politics in the country. But the north of it is a place called Twitch, and the Twitch have found themselves marginalized in the politics of Wara and in the politics of the country. And so the Twitch attacked Agok, that town I told you about, which had this big flourishing market, because they thought the Ngok, ah, oh, they're being left behind, they're being forgotten, they're politically marginal. So we can attack them and we can make a claim to this market. So in a real tragedy, it's one marginal population <clears throat> attacking another, because we think that population is also they think that population is also marginal. And from the moment these clashes began, they're really backed by politicians among the Twitch. And those include politicians in Juba. And every time Juba sends someone seemingly to stop the conflict or negotiate the conflict, they're always partisan. The great tragedy of South Sudanese politics and military politics today is that there isn't a neutral state that can intervene. So when they set up the army, it immediately appeared like the army was backing one side or the other. 
Because these commanders are not thought of as neutral commanders. They're thought of as people who have relatives, for instance, on one side or the other. And so all the attempts um, to by, by Juba to intervene have in some senses made the situation worse and not better. Now, when South Sudan got independence, there was a lot of goodwill from the international community. And you've explained how catastrophic the situation is like now in the country. And that is only getting worse. In your view, has the international community turned its back on South Sudan? Yeah, they're in waiting pose. You know, I think they, they, they enabled the construction of a basically violent kleptocratic state. They funded it. They supported it. They hero worshipped it. And then when it went bad, the Americans especially, like children, threw their toys out of the pram and said, we no longer recognize what we helped to make. Now, by all indications, the conflict in South Sudan is largely caused by ethno-political wrangles and competition among the elite over access to power and financial resources. Joining me now to explore the challenges that hinder South Sudan's road to peace is James Barnett. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Kwangu. James, at the beginning of your essay, you said you initially went to South Sudan to write about cattle rustling and what the government refers to as intercommunal conflicts in the hinterland. And then it was like you realized that there are more layers to the issue of cattle rustling and intercommunal violence. Now, as a journalist, sometimes you set out to tell one story and other issues come to the surface. Tell us about that. Right. So as you as you note, kind of my my original interest in going to South Sudan was largely to look at this issue of of conflict between communities and particularly uh, the issue of cattle raiding, um, which has been very acute in South Sudan in recent years. So my my background, uh, I'd spent the past few years uh, working in Nigeria, uh, doing a lot of research and some journalism, including for New Lines, uh, looking at issues of kind of cattle rustling and, and rural banditry. Um, and so this had been a, a big focus of my work, and, and I, I was kind of interested in getting more of a comparative perspective on this. So <clears throat> I'd known that this issue, which had become very uh, acute in Nigeria in recent years, um, kind of farmer herder conflict, uh, raiding between um, you know different communities and stealing of cattle and, and, and kidnapping and such, was something that also had uh, been a problem in um, East Africa for a while, and, and particularly in parts of South Sudan, parts of uh, northern Uganda, particularly the Karamoja region, uh, parts of northwest Kenya as well, particularly Turkana. So I was kind of interested in all of these different areas. And when I had the opportunity to go to South Sudan, it was it was largely to look at this issue of kind of the dynamics of, of what I would call militarized cattle rustling. Uh, so essentially looking at the degree to which kind of um, – you know, traditional or conventional forms of banditry between different communities, uh, particularly uh, the the kind of in the form of, of of raiding cattle from one community or another, can uh, kind of evolve into higher forms or, or, or more complex and larger scale forms of violence between communities. <laughs> um, and so, South Sudan, you know, there's been a, 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 a good amount of of kind of solid scholarship on this, but but less written from kind of a journalistic perspective, it seemed. So I, I came out looking in particular to kind of uh, go to Jongole State, which is one of the biggest uh, states in South Sudan um, outside of Juba, because that's an area where you've traditionally had a lot of uh, cattle raiding between different pastoralist communities. 
but when I was there, kind of very quickly, when I got to South Sudan, it became very it became very apparent that these kind of issues of of cattle rustling and cattle raiding were kind of linked to larger questions of kind of the you know what is the purpose of the South Sudanese state some you know eleven years after independence uh, and I guess I would say this this wasn't you know too surprising or anything um, you know I'd, I'd known that the the fact that you have such a uh, kind of violent cattle raiding in South Sudan must in some ways be a product of the uh, kind of uh, the the failed promise or the failure of kind of the South Sudanese state building project over the past decade. But I was curious to kind of understand more what, what that really looked like on the ground. Again, coming from kind of a perspective, having looked at these issues in West Africa, where the dynamics are, are a bit different, maybe the, the scope of the conflict is a bit different. Picking up on a point you made about the rivalries among the political elite, does this start at the top with the frosty relationship between President Salva Kiir and his on and off vice president, Rick Macha? And does this actually like filter down to the local leadership? Certainly, that was the that was the spark of the conflict in many ways um, in 2013. Uh, you know, it was always a bit more complex than just a rivalry between those two gentlemen. There were always different factions within the SPLM. Riek Machar, when he became, or sorry, Salva Kiir, when, when he became um, president of South Sudan and, and head of the SPLM following the death of, of Dr. John Garang, um, you know, he always, uh, there were always kind of factions that were opposed to him. Uh, there was lots of kind of uh, division within the SPLM. So even before the kind of the all-out conflict between the SPLM and the IO faction led by Riek Machar, there was, uh, you know, uh, um, Salva Kiir's government kind of moved against a number of dissidents within the SPLM. Um, so this is a whole, uh, uh, there's kind of a, um, uh, you know, a, a, a history here that, um, you know, other people have done a much, a much better job of, of, of writing than I have. I kind of have to be very circumspect in the article. Um, but all to say that, you know, despite those kind of the, the many internal divisions within the SPLM at the time, the conflict, the civil war really did kind of quickly become largely a, a conflict between those two blocks, between Salva Kiir and, and Riek Machar. Um, although, especially as as the conflict dragged on, the opposition side in particular um, ended up kind of splintering and fracturing. So you, ha- you ended up having a number of different factions uh, kind of competing with each other there. My own observations um, kind of being there last year was that uh, Riek Machar is not really that relevant of an actor at this point. Um, he's been kind of under de facto house arrest for uh, several years now. He's not considered to necessarily be um, a kind of a, a real viable candidate against Salva Kiir uh, in the upcoming elections, which have been delayed for a very long time. Uh, in many ways, people kind of see this as, you know, this is Salva Kiir's uh, state right now, right? That he's uh, kind of uh, consolidated a, a degree of authoritarian control, that he's uh, working to uh, kind of ensure that the elections will go his way and such. And so a lot of the violence that's happening now, it can't really be ascribed to kind of solely the Salva Kiir-Riek Machar rivalry. You write about the military elites and how they've fueled the conflict through corruption and by manipulating resources and also undermining human rights in the country. Is it right to say that they've actually formed a military aristocracy? Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's probably one way to look at it. The The military and the party and the state they almost kind of exist in a trinity, uh, kind of, you know, they're, they're one in the same. They're not really separated, right? So you don't have kind of 
political in their conceptualization of, of okay, what should a modern African state look like? It's not necessarily okay. You have multi-party democracies, like you have kind of a state bureaucracy and a government that exists and persists throughout different administrations, throughout different personal leaders, and throughout different parties. And then separately, you have the political parties that compete with each other in elections and stuff. And then separately, you have the military, which acts as kind of a uh, a professional, apolitical um, kind of force that's resistant to the political pressures from the other two and is just there to kind of enforce order and defend sovereignty. In the liberation movement kind of uh, ideology, these three concepts are, are, are very fused together. So that's kind of where the, the Leninist tradition comes in. Um, again, you know, Maoist as well. A lot of these liberation movements were inspired by the success of, of Mao's revolution in China. So when the SPLM essentially, you know, when they, when South Sudan achieves independence in 2011, South Sudan is, for all intents and purposes, a one-party and kind of one-party military state. Um, and pretty much all of the politicians or most of the politicians in South Sudan are also referred to as generals, right? Because they, many of them were also kind of involved in the military struggle against uh, the Sudanese state for, for that period. And so they have both military experience as well as being kind of political conjuring or political ideologues. Um, and then, you know, being politicians in, in the new context. So, so I think that in some ways, yes, there is a bit of a military aristocracy, but it's not like, say, um, in, in northern Sudan, you know, what, what we call Sudan today, uh, which is experiencing a, a horrific civil war as we speak. And there, in some ways, you really have much more of kind of, uh, you know, the fault lines of the conflict. There's ethnic dimensions, regional dimensions, all of that. But it's also very much an institutional conflict where you really have a military aristocracy there that descends from the colonial period where you have the Sudan armed forces that are um, kind of see themselves as as the the kind of the, the the only true national army and national military for the country, the upholders of the nation's sovereignty, all that stuff. And then they're fighting kind of an insurgent force from the periphery of the RSF and, and affiliated militias. And so there, in some ways, there's a bit more of kind of that like institutional continuity if you're trying to understand uh, that conflict today. Whereas in, in South Sudan, it's not so much that the military... Um, kind of that that the same kind of the colonial military and then the post-colonial military is, um, is now what's kind of driving events within South Sudan. Rather, the country experienced a pretty radical revolution, but the the agents of that change, you know, the, the revolutionary movement was itself one that doesn't distinguish between party, state, and military. South Sudan is meant to go to the polls in December 2024, and this will be the first general election since independence in 2011. Do you anticipate that the elections will be held in such an environment? I think what we've seen uh, both, you know, uh, in Africa, but also many other parts of the world, um, is that you can you can hold elections, uh, kind of quote unquote, hold elections in just about any environment. The question is whether they're really representative and, and free and fair. Um, and I think that at, at this stage, no one I talk to thinks that these elections are going to be free and fair and, and legitimate. Um, you know, you might have, uh, I mean, like, I think logistically to actually go out and for the, the South Sudanese state, um, you know, they don't have the capacity to hold elections in, in, in most of the hinterland and in, in most of the country, frankly. Um, if they did, you know, it's, uh, I mean, I know that the, the South Sudanese government is asking for a lot of foreign assistance to, to hold these elections and stuff. I mean, again, South Sudan in some ways is kind of a, a ward of the 
the the quote unquote international community. So they're they're definitely making the the argument. They're 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 trying to sell their case that you know they just that it's just a logistical constraint, right? That they just need more resources and then they'll be able to hold these elections. But you know, from what from what I saw. Uh, the South Sudanese state is still very much carved up into kind of competing fiefdoms. And so each part of the country is kind of, uh, you know, essentially dominated by one political faction or another. There's no unified state to speak of, right? And whether that's in the military or that's in the civil bureaucracy. And so it's very hard to imagine kind of a national, like an electoral commission um, that has the resources, the capacity the the kind of buy-in from the political elites, uh, you know, or, or the local elites around the country to, to kind of hold a credible election. And all of that is even kind of setting aside the question of does the incumbent leader, Salva Kiir, want a free, fair, and credible election? Um, and most people, including I think most uh, international observers and journalists and analysts, are very much of the view that he's, he's not interested in that. So I think, um, you know, other than maybe some of the some of the officials and the spokesmen that I spoke to in Juba, um, I don't think anyone had a particularly optimistic uh, perspective on the upcoming elections. Um, there was, you know, uh, people were pretty sure that they would be delayed and that if and when they're held, they won't be, uh, you know, up to international standards. They won't be the real kind of referendum on Kira's leadership that, uh, that the government has promised. Thank you, James. This week's podcast was produced by Patrick Hagen and hosted by me, Kwanguliwewe. For more in-depth discussions and analysis on Africa, visit our website at newlinesmag.com. Thanks for listening in.